Hey friends, this is a two-part episode. Content warning here. We do mention briefly suicidal ideation and sexual assault. Don't go into a lot of graphic detail, but it's important for you to know that. It's the holiday break. And so Stacy and I had a, a rare opportunity to be able to just sit down and kind of reflect on this provocative statement I made recently on uh, TikTok, which you can follow us on. We are at Dow Surfers at T-A-O-S-U-R-F-E-R-S. And uh, we're kind of enjoying getting into that largely because it allows me not to have to type with my thumbs, which is becoming difficult for me <laughs> now that my eyesight is, uh, is, is going in my late 40s. Ah, but that's all right because I've been really uh, enjoying some of the feedback there. But some people have, in the course of that, that post, they ask questions like, are you talking about the mainline denominations schools? Are you talking about the Jesuit schools? No, I'm not talking about that. This two-part show is really about 900 institutions in the United States that are part of this grouping, uh, this organization's network called the CCCU. Have no necessarily specific beef with the CCCU, but that's the definition that I'm going to be working with. Universities and colleges in America that are trying to integrate evangelical faith with mainstream learning, and they're trying to do this in a way that is respectable. And in fact, they're doing a pretty good job of it, and that, I'm going to suggest, is also part of the problem. Because the better they do at making you think that you're getting a really open conversation, the harder it is for us to realize when we are still being guided ever so gently into a way of thinking that isn't as free and as open as it could otherwise be. This first part, Stacy and I are going to be discussing, maybe spending a little bit extra time discussing, our experiences with a Bible Institute, the Lutheran Bible Institute that became Trinity Lutheran College, and we'll be sharing at the end of the episode some of our experiences with Colorado Christian University, which was uh, basically taken over by a political agenda. But if you're interested in something that's very to the point, this ain't the show for you. <laughs> and if you don't care about Christian universities in America and uh, what this means and why I think we should dismantle them and how I think we should dismantle them, then, you know, skip and go to a different show. But even if you're not from a Christian background and even if you don't think you care about this, you might want to just kind of chill with us and listen up because I believe genuinely that, that America, the environment, the economy, the whole world is endangered by the operation of Christian universities. I should know I've been deeply invested and a part of them. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for being along with us for the ride. Here's part one. Let's go. Stacy and I both graduated from Christian colleges. Mm. But before we get into that, I want to say uh, something that I didn't get a chance to talk about on the TikTok when I first mentioned this mm -hmm. uh, idea of dismantling Christian universities, that one of the things that was a, a kind of a nice part of my life and career, a joyful time in my life, although very stressful, was serving as academic dean at Trinity Lutheran College, your 
alma mater. You also studied for a little bit at Colorado Christian University because yeah. I was teaching there. Yes. So um, you've had some experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had experiences outside of the Christian university world as well. You I started at, like doing work at Penn. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. University of Pennsylvania. I'm only laughing because yeah. that was pretty legit. You know, yeah. I, I moved you around, you know, because of academic life. So as I think about this, actually, I guess since I went to the community college, I guess a um, little less than like, so definitely less than half of my education was at Christian uh, colleges. Or but that's where you ended up. That's yeah, where that's you where got I your degree. Up. That's where I got my degree. When you think about all of that, and the reason, reason I'm mentioning this is that um, when I posted this on, on uh, TikTok, this idea, by the way, we're under the uh, handle Dow Surfers, T-A-O, Dow Surfers. Um, the, you know, one of the things that people came out with, uh, in the comments was, well, this, does this have to do with the Gonzagas and even the Notre Dames and maybe the Valparaisos and the Baylors? Um, and not really, uh, definitely not a lot of the institutions that started out as being sponsored by churches that became just, you know top-tier research universities, that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about Christian universities, we're not even really talking about, like, Pacific Lutheran University, some of these mainline denomination-sponsored universities. They have a spectrum, but those are kind of just private liberal arts schools that are sponsored by a church in kind of the way your local hospital might be <laughs> sponsored by the Presbyterians. Right. So we're not talking about those. We're not talking about the Catholic schools that are basically secularized with chaplaincy and that sort of thing. We're talking about this idea of uh, a school that has the integration of faith and learning, but also when they say faith and learning, that they've kind of Christianized the curriculum. Right. And that they have the ability to select faculty based on very specific doctrinal principles, things like belief in hell, Things like belief in the literal interpretation of scripture, not always, but that's a common mm -hmm. thing that could be there. And sometimes like at, in like the case of Biola, where I went for a period of time, the case of Biola, you have uh, like, you have to be a dispensationalist. You don't just have to be a conservative Christian. Right. You have to believe in a very specific and historically peculiar belief in the rapture and the end times. And then usually a lot of times these places will also have you sign documents with certain conduct of what's, you know, what's allowed or not allowed while you're right. a student. Sometimes you whether can't be you drinking live, beer. Whether you live on campus or not, you can be completely off campus yes. and still they would want you to sort of... A um, lot of lifestyle expectations. Yes. Those have eased over the years. I remember when we applied to, when I applied to teach at Colorado Christian University, we then popped over and had a beer, but we were worried that somebody might see us and that I'd lose the opportunity because kind of technically you weren't supposed to, I guess, at the time. So, so anyway, th that's what we're talking about. And interestingly, we're not talking about Bible colleges. And I want to like leave this out. Uh, Trinity Lutheran College started out as one of several Lutheran Bible institutes. There are Bible colleges that did not pretend to be universities. Right. And when I got to when I got to Trinity, I remember there were some kids that were saying, "I don't like the liberal arts, and the liberal arts is a problem." And I didn't realize, in many ways, at the time, that yeah, kind of it is a problem to think that you could have this 
kind of guarantee of orthodoxy and yet an open mind and critical thought and you're reading non-Christian writers and you're studying just arts and sciences generally, that there was this sense in which the Bible school realized you couldn't do both. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were fundamentalist or literalistic in their interpretation. Because one of the things that I found as I was looking at some of these institutions in the Scandinavian Lutheran church, for instance, is that they were totally cool with, uh, with evolution at first. Mm. Um, there, there were a couple uh, Lutheran schools that predated Trinity Lutheran and Pacific Lutheran in the state of Washington that were uh, kind of interesting. They were moralistic. They're pietists, mm-hmm. but they, they just used a standard evolutionary biological textbook. They had no problem with it. Um, That is in its own way kind of different. It's kind of a way of saying what what the Bible school movement was, was before you went off to study the, you know, maybe something like the STEM disciplines in a university, you would go to one of these Bible colleges just to kind of have your parents know that you, you had that formation, right. you learned, Foundation. you know, maybe that's a problem if you're, what you're trying to do is, in, you know, insulate kids against the secularism that they're going to learn later. But everybody knows what's going on. There's a group of kids, they're singing praise songs, they're, also, they're having kind of camp style stuff. And I also think I'm that- not trying to stop religions from doing this. Okay. So, right. And and I think it's also, um, (laughs) I think a large part of the reason that that even is a thing is for people to find partners (laughs) to get married within the system, you know, and especially also like, you know, there was a time when, you know, the idea of women going to college in general to like go off and get their career isn't, you know, as much accepted in sometimes the Christian circles, depending on what your belief is or whatever. And so, but it is acceptable to go learn about God. So then you can also maybe teach your children, teach Sunday school or be a teacher within, right. um, you know, Christian school settings. Right. You could do the Lutheran Bible Institute. You go get an education degree at the state university, save a little bit of money. And then you uh, go in and you're, you're a Christian informed person going out into the world. All right. I still think that parents that want to do that are probably wasting their time and money in the sense that um, there are so many resources for engaging biblical studies from an atheistic perspective to a true believer perspective that are online and free. There are opportunities within, within church gatherings, you know, there's things to do, but you know, go for it. If you want to have a rabbinical school, you want to have a madrasa, you want to have uh, a, a Zen center, go learn that stuff, but don't call it, don't call it university. And I, I've had I a change a, of mind I have a question. On this one. For some of these Bible schools, uh, do they usually come through traditions that also do uh, a catechism or do, or is it? Not always. I mean, that's the thing about the Lutheran Bible Institute. Stacy's talking about uh, if you're an outsider to this, the catechism is a very formal uh, process. It's confirmation where you, you go in and you get the full training with these questions and answers, and then you become received into membership in the, in the community, in the church. A lot of times 
kids would go through that process in the mainline churches, Mm -hmm. but they didn't get deep enough. So the true believers, the more pietist wing, in this case of the Lutheran church, uh, the ELCA, what became the church bodies that became the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is which is a much more progressive church body in America. Uh, that um, that group had within it that more pietistic wing that didn't feel comfortable just sending their kids to Pacific Lutheran University because it was too secularized. Mm-hmm. So before you even do that, you might go to the the Bible College. Gotcha. Did that answer your question? Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I was just curious the connection, like, because I do feel that. Especially for, um, I guess it would it'd feel a little bit more attractive, perhaps, to for some folks to, to send their children if they didn't think that they had that formal training within their own church system. Yes, um, that it again that this for that, is like that catechism plus Bible. This is where I forgot to go. Um, so the catechism taught you the basic doctrinal points gotcha. of Lutheranism. But it didn't get you into God's word. It didn't get you like, right? Like, so what you did was you would go to the Bible school to really get that through the Bible kind of grounding and literacy. Because I remember, I mean, one of the things that a lot of the evangelical kids at Trinity found interesting was the mainline Lutheran pastors that they knew sometimes didn't know all the nuances of the evangelical uh, conversation about a text. Mm Mm-hmm. Or they didn't really know a lot of nuanced conversations about that text, period, whether they're evangelical or not, because they only read over, say, three decades. This is not a criticism of all mainline Lutheran pastors, but it was just an experience that some of my evangelical students had that had gone through all of 1 Corinthians and really, you know, rooted through that in a youth group program or something. The pastor might have had some class on the Pauline epistles in seminary, but might not have spent a lot of time going through the text in that same way and only dealt primarily with texts that were in the lectionary. That is texts that were assigned to be read in a, in a yearly or three year cycle. And so they didn't know it was before or after it sometimes in the way that the evangelical kids did. And I would say from my, um, evangelical upbringing, um, being in the, uh, you know, non-denominational church, that context, there was a lot of, um, verse memorization. I mean, I was in the Awana program and then a lot of that, you know, even like memorizing all the books of the Bible and the order. And I really was able to navigate my Bible quite well because I knew, you know, (laughs) I knew where to find Ezekiel, you know, like some of these things where like, you know, there's times where you could just see where people just sort of like flip through till you can find the, the you know, the, uh, the book of the Bible that's being, you know, currently talked about. Yes. Um, but I definitely, you know, even obviously sometimes with your help through the youth group and, in, in um, being part of the, the music, you know, and the band and stuff like that for the songs. But, um, there was a lot of verses in the music that we sang. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of verse memorization just in the program in general. And so anyway, I just felt like, um, there was a lot of Bible memorization that I came from as a foundation. And I was very surprised to see the difference as an adult convert to Lutheranism, that lack of familiarity with actual 
Right. So the, the, all of the Bible and how it fits so together. So the Lutheran Bible Institutes wanted to fill that Makes gap sense. in the mid 20th century. There's a lot of kids having fun in the seventies. They seem to have a lot of fun. And you know this, Stacey, because you had the very interesting and awkward opportunity to work with alumni yeah. at Trinity Lutheran College that had been either LBI, Lutheran Bible Institute alumni, mm-hmm. and didn't really like where things had gone. Right. Right. Or people that came afterwards that didn't really understand the earlier part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was essentially, in a lot of ways... Uh, two, uh, it felt like two separate colleges, right? And yeah. so part of my that job... That was the hard part. You're alumni relations Yeah, and part of my job was to try to bring both of those worlds together. <laughs> and yeah, and like kind of help them sort of see, you know, the university that it was at this time. Or the time, college, but yeah. Or the, sorry, the college. Yeah, yeah the college. Um, to see it all as still their college, no matter where it was at, you know, yeah. which didn't always work. <laughs> no. What do you think people would say was what really made them love it in the seventies or eighties as alumni? Like what, what, what was it that really made them have fond memories of it? Most famous alumnus, by the way, Fluvog, oh. <laughs> who never would come. We always like, that was the, that was the, the prize. I mean, if we could just get Fluvog, uh, who does an amazing, uh, well, I'll link to it on protectornoggin.org. If you don't know who he is, he is, Probably my my favorite shoe designer in the in the country. Just an amazing shoe. You have a, a couple fluvogs. Sydney's got a fluvog. Yes, I, I pair. They're expensive. I bought the 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 vegan one. <laughs> um, which yeah, so I they're fun. I really enjoy. On the bottom, it, it like it, it says uh, like repels oil, dirt, and Satan or something. Yeah. Yeah. The shoes, I guess the, the design for them was kind of like, he kind of designs his shoes as if they were almost like cars. Yes. And then, um, each one has its own personality, if you will. And they're very creative. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I would say though, as far as, um, I mean, of course they loved the, they did love that like intimate relationship with the Bible, but I also, it's just, I think the relationships with each other and their, um, you know, the professors at the time. And I think you mentioned that campiness and I think Mm. there was that campy feel, but, and also in both the Christian camp sense and in campiness, whatever campy, whatever campy means as an, and I will say that, um, there was the years when it was in Issaquah that had like, I mean, I know the chapel was a big deal and the stained glass windows. It was a former convent and I, big, beautiful building. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that they, they loved, um, the music <laughs> that they did together, yes. you know, especially a lot of singing. Yeah. So those are, and yeah, just, I think, um, cause I mean, I didn't spend very much time in Issaquah, but that building, like, you know, you mentioned the former convent. It's like it had a lot of history and this feeling of like, I don't know, maybe the closest thing I've kind of I've seen like Hogwarts or something, but not mm-hmm. like that. But it's like you're you're going to this whole like mm-hmm. self-sufficient type place right. that's on this hill that felt very... Um, I don't know. Maybe. Enchanted. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And the, the loss of that I could see is a disenchanting kind well, of thing. Well, it, you know. it, be, it was an older building and it needed a lot of work, oh, right? Yeah, and there's no way with a small campus or a small population of students that, that they could have that big campus. Right. So they sold that campus. They built something in Everett, Washington. Now, by the way, my, my old office in Everett, Washington is now... 
the headquarters of Funko. The people who make those kind of bobblehead toy-looking things uh, will also link to that. Strange when we went back, that, that, and I, we haven't mentioned that Trinity Lutheran College closed after we left, Yeah, a couple of years after we left. And uh, it's kind of sad because we had gone from the least diverse Lutheran college in America to the most diverse. We, we b- bolstered up the, the, the enrollment. We built a, a really cool chapel with some cool people. We had um, really interesting faculty. When you can imagine from the smaller Bible school setting, though, to now the most diverse Christian university. That you was know, some whiplash. Yeah, for some folks, like, you know, there's... The one thing about a lot of these, like with the, some of the Christian worlds is they are a little bit more isolated, right? Yes. They're a little bit more, you know, um, outside of society and start you start bringing in all sorts of diversity. And I think it's, I think it's a huge bonus. I think that helps any, um, education yes. system. I think it's very important piece. It's one of the key pieces I think, um, to even attending, uh, a, a college or university is to get, um, you know, exposed to a whole bunch of different ideas and people. And, and I think that that part is beautiful. Um, I would say that for the new students that were coming, it was a place for them to also find a sense of um, community and like a, a belonging, but I think being a part of things, it was very easy since it was such a small college that if you wanted to be a part of the bookstore that, you know, like, and you even had this living learning concept that you developed um, there where the students would be involved in, you know, that particular area of helping to run the university. So business students could help run the bookstore type of thing. Um, but when you look at being able to have opportunities for, you know, building your resume, being a smaller college, there were a lot of opportunities that you could then like be a, a, like have a, have a role, have a place, right. And be very active within that college community and not just getting lost in big numbers. And, you know, like when I was at what university of Pennsylvania, you know, you're clearly just a number, you know, to the professors Yes. to, you know, like you, it, it, it's really, I mean, you really have, it's like getting involved is maybe picking one small, tiny little area of, you know, the university to maybe, you know, be a part of and not very many opportunities because it's just the pool yeah. of what is, you know, like the, the sheer candidates for things is, you know, it's just such a huge, huge number. But the smaller colleges, you have an idea and you can probably propose it and if it and if it sounds good then you can actually like yeah. carry it out a lot of opportunities for growth mm-hmm. leadership connection with faculty so that's like a thing that as we're talking about dismantling christian universities not only do i want to mention that there's a slightly different beast known as the bible institute which mm-hmm. i'm not talking about because generally speaking they don't get public funding anyway so that's gonna it's just gonna be a whole different game it is very common around the country that there are abusive situations going on there. I have been uh, made aware of and connected to in various administrative roles, relationships or lack thereof. Uh, I think I mentioned on the show before, there was something in Colorado where they were trying to link up their Bible college with us and there was abusive situations going on there. So it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's necessarily safe, 
for parents to do this, but I'm not really focused on that when I say we should dismantle Christian Christian universities. So which which. So tell us, which ones are you focusing on here for dismantling? So uh, I, I will answer that question, but I do want to go back to Trinity in a second. Um, but yeah, I'm talking about the basically the members of what's called the CCCU, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, which ironically, or I don't know if ironically is the word, I they're a, they're a kind of classy organization. They're solid. They, um, generally speaking, put on events that elevate the academic rigor and uh, the quality and the excellence of, of what these Christian colleges are trying to do. So I wouldn't say that the CCCU is in any specific way problematic, but it is the kind of governing agency, but also as I'll get to the lobbying organization mm -hmm. for these colleges and universities. And there are about 900 institutions in the United States. That's I don't know if that seems like a big or small number to people. Depending on where you are, there could be a few in driving distance. There's lots in Texas and California and in uh, Illinois. There are some places where you just don't have them. Like mm. Louisiana doesn't have any Christian colleges. Hmm. Um, probably that, because of that, population. In that system. In that system. Not, not in, yeah, in this idea of what I'm talking about. Um, and it is generally... Uh, though not always connected to this idea of the integration of faith and learning. A couple of outliers, one being the, uh, the Concordias, which I think still had it better. I think we in the Concordias did it better than uh, the thing I find most problematic about Christian universities is the idea of, quote, integration of faith and learning, which tends to mean you're Christianizing Mm. It's kind of a very reformed concept. You're you're kind of blurring the lines between your vocation as a as a researcher and academic, and the theological angle. What what we were trying to do at Concordia, what they're still trying to do, is to have an engagement between faith and um, any discipline. An right. engagement meaning here's my faith. Here's what the best research says in the discipline. Let's have a conversation about it. And I think there, that is legitimate mm -hmm. because the secular idea, I will also say the secular idea of bracketing out or excluding any conversation about spirituality, faith, and like, no, we are human beings with all this nuance and entanglement. And so there's nothing wrong with talking about it. The, my problem, as we'll see here, is the idea that you're going to do all this research, but if you come to a conclusion that differs from the conclusion that we established 500 years ago, then you're a bad person, yeah. that you're no longer employable here or, or whatever, right? right? So there's these guardrails on research that I think is the real problem. Um, but before I go there, I want to go back to Trinity because, okay, so right, you've got this, uh, the CCCU, 900 schools within the uh, system. Trinity was not part of that. And the Concordias recently were. So the Concordias, like I said, they're kind of integrating faith and learning. You have kind of mainline church-related schools that don't count because they are open and affirming of queer kids. They are not only hiring fundamentalist Christians as faculty, you know, and they have maybe a religion class required, and then they have an active chaplaincy program with chapel. Okay, so that's what you're going to get at California Lutheran, um, 
you know, a lot, a lot, but not all of the ELCA sponsored schools, mm. the Presbyterian Church in USA schools are kind of somewhere in between. And then we also, when I started teaching, I was teaching at Union College in Kentucky, which by the way is interesting because we were just watching a movie with our youngest who was born in Corbin, Kentucky. Yeah. There's a movie called Trouble Behind. In 1991, they did a whole documentary about the problem of race relations and what was going on in Corbin. If I had seen that movie, it would have <laughs> saved me from you know, getting yeah. into trouble with the KKK because I didn't realize what I was getting into. Right. But even there, that was a regular college. It was a liberal arts school okay. sponsored by the United Methodist Church that had a, a guy named Max who was a very cool chaplain who was kind of a Marxist, um, liberal theologian, cool guy. Lived night next door to us. Right. Everything's cool. You know, like... That's not what I'm talking about. Even though that was a very fundamentalist part of the world, that school as a school did not only hire fundamentalist Christians. It had one and one thing that Jewish I Jewish agnostic yeah. faculty. You know what I mean? One of the things that I did appreciate about that school and <clears throat> and when they're planning their curriculum was the integration of um, disciplines together. Union College. Yeah, Union College. Yes, it was, yeah, it was interdisciplinary. Yes. That's where we met Ron Rosenstiel, mm -hmm. an indigenous American who uh, taught us a lot about uh, kind of what was going on with reburying indigenous yeah. remains in uh, the region. We got to, to attend the Wind River Tribe stuff as honorary guests, uh, yeah. reburial, a lot of good stuff. So and farming, religion farming and spirituality all came into it, but that, that was great in its own way. Uh, you know, if you get rid of the problems I had with the KKK and the, the surrounding community, the, uh, that's not what I'm talking about either. So they're not part of the CCCU anyway. So right. again, I'm talking about this very specific thing. I'm talking about the Wheaton Colleges. I'm talking about on the very high end, Westmont. You know, Westmont is so sophisticated that I like I couldn't have really taught there. They were just like only going for the best faculty that they could get that would sign the statements of faith. There's also interestingly one school that's an outlier that is the closest. I think probably one of the grooviest of them is in Spokane, Washington. I'm thinking of Whitworth mm. in Spokane, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Whitworth does not require their faculty to sign their statement of faith. They require faculty to submit a statement of their faith. Gotcha. So it can be a little bit more open. So they're trying really hard. But ultimately, here's the problem. Even if faculty and administrators at those schools are interesting, open-minded, tolerant, welcoming people with uh, full support of LGBT inclusion at a personal level, the business model and the political scenario is such that they just can't do it. That is, they, they have to spend a lot of their intellectual energy. And this is now what I'm appealing to you if you're a Christian college professor or administrator or a staff member. The agonizing work that has to be done as people start to, they get into the system, they get a job, and then they start to wake up as we have the internet and we read and we meet people and you start to come to an awareness of new insights and you realize this puts your job in jeopardy. And everybody kind of understands like 
the world's changing, but you can't do anything about it because the only way, one of the only ways you can get somebody to pay a little extra money for this private education is to say, at least we don't say that we descend from apes. At least we don't we don't provide space for your kids to explore their um, gender identity, sexual identity, and then come back to you, parents, right? Not who you want them to be. Right. And um, that's that's kind of really where this where this becomes problematic. The idea that um, the the money is going to be based on tuition dollars, primarily tuition dollars and donors. And if the donors are giving because they want to preserve a conservative agenda, conservative theological and political agenda, mm-hmm. which we'll get to, there's that part of it. And then there's parents who want their kids to marry somebody who's a conservative Christian. There's just that, that inherent problem right. where the school itself can't fix itself right. without losing money. Right. Take us back to Trinity. Trinity was a beautiful project. I loved it. Um, I think the problem for me and the reason why I ended up having to leave is that I realized it was something I really wanted to do. And there were some of us that wanted to do it, but I can't make or I couldn't make my passion for what could be what everybody was going to get on board with if we couldn't get on board with it, which was the way I tried to, to frame it with, uh, with the president there, John Reed, we were, we were trying to communicate this idea that there was a common conversation. In other words, not all faculty had to be Christian, not all students had to be Christian, but what we all agreed to was one of our primary source texts was the Bible, a very important piece of it. So we're going to wrestle with it. We would have Dave Ellingson talking about environmentalism uh, as a framework for, un- and, and, and social justice as a framework for reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we had, we had uh, kind of Jan Fekas, a, a strong, very thoughtful evangelical take. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? We had just different people within this, and there was a spectrum, theological spectrum, um, political spectrum. But this was a problem because when you th- when we think, say, with the board of directors, Trinity was trying to be a, and it was, a pan-Lutheran school, meaning it had the conservative wing and it had the mainstream wing. It had the ELCA and, originally, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, same group who runs the Concordias. Right. Well, the thing is that if at Trinity you wanted to get everybody together the LCMS people wouldn't send board members. So they kind of pulled back from it. But nobody that was in the mainstream really trusted Trinity because it had this history as a Bible college. So if they were going to dedicate their time and energy to something, they might send it over to Pacific Lutheran, which was the big university of the ELCA. Mm, mm -hmm. So we were stuck in this. We were trying not to be all things to all people, but it was like a place for to be... Conservative and Lutheran, another or thing conservative as a, and liberal in the same place. As an academic dean, I know you struggled with trying to figure out what is the right amount of units that that the students would have to um, spend in some of these, yeah. some of the the Bible classes and oh, things like yeah. that. Trying to preserve a very heavy core of Bible classes was. Was daunting for people that wanted to come to play soccer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So when they, you know, when you start adding 
all this athletic programs and people coming for different reasons, uh, all sorts of different reasons. It's really, really hard when a a huge amount of your electives is all going to go to just learning about the Bible. Right. But that's what also the alumni wanted so that they could still feel like it was, you know, had the pieces of the Bible Mm -hmm. college threaded through the new, you know, curriculum. Yeah. So it was a, it was a really tough struggle of like finding balance. And so when I'm talking about dismantling Christian universities, I don't say this with like kind of glee. I'm just saying with a heavy heart, I've tried it in many functions, Mm -hmm. uh, in in many formats. And so we have, you know, and even myself being a Mm -hmm. part of, um, advancement or development. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just my side of it. Yeah. Seeing it, I've saw it from the inside of the administration as well yeah. of some of these, you know, how this stuff works. Right. You need, you need these old timers to keep contributing, but then they're like, all right, are you letting gay people in? <laughs> uh, right. Like, well, you want a couple million dollars. That'd be nice. And there's no strings attached necessarily, but you realize that that's kind of a piece to it. They want to hold the kind of cultural war, it is interesting. Well. It is interesting trying to find also what people would want to fund because they're, I mean, they very much like there's an agenda there usually when yes. they're giving lots of money, um, which is, again, part of one of the problems that you're saying, right? right. And by not actually being academically free when you deal with donations um, that come with, you know, certain strings or, um, or you will fall out of favor for sure (laughs) if certain things appear around campus or not. And the experiment of trying to have an open and inclusive, but biblically centered college, Trinity Lutheran college didn't work. And so not with like joy, I'm saying, well, that, that could be a thing. I mean, I, I think there is a place for that because a lot of people came from very conservative backgrounds and this was a place for them to wrestle with it in a non-threatening way. It wasn't like they were going to be just purely reaffirmed and it wasn't like they were going to go somewhere where they were going to get the faith intentionally beat out of them. Mm-hmm. It was a place for them to kind of be. That wasn't always true because if you go back to a prior show, I'll link to it at protectyournoggin.org where we have our show notes. We have uh, a show that we did with our uh, dear friend Casey, who was a former student. He was a graduate of Trinity and I think would say he had a good time. But when uh, he got there, before I was the dean there, he was in class and he had a professor trying to pray away his gay. Yeah. And making it rather uncomfortable. Right. You'll hear his story on the, on the show. And so... The window. And and that's an understatement. It was rather yeah. uncomfortable. I mean, because also just the impact that that had on Casey and his mental health and everything. Yeah. It was, it was huge. It was yes. big. It was, I don't, I just want to make sure that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a big it deal. It was heavy. It was very And heavy. so like, so I'm not saying every experience all the time, and I'm not even saying that it was going to be a perfect place while I was there, but while I was there, and it wasn't just me, we had Betsy Little, who you've heard on the show, and uh, my friend, uh, our friend Dave Schultz, yep. good people at, the, at this place, but that was part of a new era that was trying to emerge, that was trying to become something new, and uh, if you had gone back a few years it might not necessarily have been as powerful and positive an experience depending on who you were and right. where, you know, so, 
so well, if I think about that, if I think about, right, to your point, the pain that Casey was caused by that experience yeah. makes it something that I don't really want to encourage for anybody. Well, I don't and, want... and then it was, you know, it was, that was kind of how, like, we also discovered, you know, at one point, what, there's a list that, of colleges and universities that are um, considered very unsafe for L- for the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And when... Um, you know, sometimes more recently Concordia was put on this. Right. And so when we, you know, when we bring that to sometimes the attention of the people that are higher up, they'll kind of tend to say, look at the list and just say, oh, well, this is every, but this is every Christian college on essentially that list you were the talking about. The so there's nothing so, wrong with us. Yeah. There's the same as that is if that, yeah, it means that there's nothing wrong with, with them, but the idea is, okay, then why are all of these colleges and universities unsafe for this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big deal because they, yep. they are unsafe. Right. So the, the thing that's interesting is that they are unsafe and yet the 900, mm-hmm. the, the coalition being 900 normalizes it in America. Right. right. It makes it like, okay, this is like a, this is a thing that but that's what Christian universities should be about. reasonable. It's okay. Right? We can do this because other people do it. Right. And that's what I think is just so weird. I know that it was pretty fast. I know this might seem like whiplash for y'all, but as I just have been able to deconstruct the dogmatism of my youth, being able to separate out from it just for a second, I look at this and say, it is weird that there is this large of a, of a footprint of this kind of thinking in the country and it's funded. Mm-hmm. All right. In various ways, it's funded in various ways that I'll get to that, that could be problematic. But one more time, do not want to speak ill against former friends and colleagues right. and administrators. I, I don't have any beef with anybody. I had a generally good experience other than I saw pain. It was the kid's pain that caused me to say, I, this is too much. I cannot put up with this. And that is, and that's the unsafe part, right? It's, yes. it's the, the pain that caught that, that community receives in these environments is detrimental to their health. Right. Yeah. And so because of that, that's why I'm saying we should just stop doing this. We should stop doing this, not, um, in, in any, uh, heavy handed way, as I say, but we ourselves should voluntarily say, I can see how much pain is caused here. Uh, just like Luke Skywalker and and uh, Yoda, they're saying, hey, we, we get too many Sith coming out of this operation. <laughs> Let's just shut down the way we've been doing it. All right. So I mentioned this on TikTok uh, recently. I gave five reasons why I thought that we should dismantle Christian universities. I want to go over those briefly and, you know, kind of give a little bit more detail to it, more than I would put into a TikTok post. So the first is anti-intellectualism. And this is um, probably something for outsiders that would go without saying. But it is important to realize that there are ways in which um, the Christian trained or the Christian university trained kid will seem and in some ways be smarter than the average kid. They have to do that extra work. Mark Knoll famously wrote in the 90s, the problem with the evangelical mind is there really isn't an evangelical mind. And then they said, okay, well, let's, let's go back. Let's win over the culture by being really good scholars. 
And so from the perspective of, of like me as a student in the 90s, mm-hmm. seeing this advance towards a very engaged, relatively speaking, open-minded, thoughtful Christianity was helpful. I'll give you an analogy, and that is uh, Cotton Mather. Um, Cotton Mather um, in the... Uh, in, in the Salem witch trials, you remember the Salem witch trials, or yeah. you've heard, heard about of them. Of course. Um, has this really interesting role. Uh, let me just read one piece of it. This is kind of interesting. Um, this is to a guy named John Foster in 1692. This is, again, the time of the Salem witch trials. He says, Sir, you would know whether I still retain my opinion about the horrible witchcrafts among us, and I acknowledge that I do. I do still think that when there is no further evidence against a person, but only this, that a specter in their shape does afflict a neighbor, that evidence is not enough to convict the person of witchcraft. That the devils have a natural power which makes them capable of exhibiting what shape they please, I suppose nobody doubts. And I have no absolute promise of God that they shall not exhibit mine." It is the opinion generally of all Protestant writers that the devil may thus abuse the innocent. What what is he saying? He's saying there are witches and the devil does manipulate people, but we can't just be convicting and executing people on what, what he calls spectral evidence. That is, you're in your living room and your neighbor appears as a spirit, as a specter in your house and then curses your cat and then your cat dies. Lovely. You could say, well, this person's a witch because they did this. They killed my cat or they killed my, my sow or something. And, but here's the point. So yes, the Salem witch trials are, are crazy, right? We all, mm-hmm. we, we, we use that as an example of anti-intellectualism in American Christian thought right? From the 17th century in this case. But check this out. The key is, um, this guy is a, is a smart theologian in his way. And the, the legal opinion here, uh, his opinion about the the legal process is really helpful. What he's saying is whether or not you believe in Santa Claus, you know, you can't make belief in that thing part of your legal case against somebody that's going to get them convicted, right? Like that, that is an important part of the history of American uh, legal development that even if you believe this stuff, because the devil could, as what Cotton Mather is saying is the devil could deceive people by taking the form of your neighbor and making it seem like they're a witch. And, and so the devil's causing the witch trials, not their, weird opinions, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there's just, yeah, there's just so much you can do with that and you can basically get anybody you want in trouble. Well, and, and they did. So Cotton Mather was a move in the right direction. Right. This is, this is my problem with Christian universities. I don't think Christian universities are necessarily ill-intended or evil. I think they're like Cotton Mather. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Cotton Mather, for moving us in the right direction. Now we're not convicting people of devil worship just because we saw their ghosts. Mm-hmm. He says we should look for, you know, third teats, or you know, <laughs> do they have poppets? I mean, he wouldn't be against convicting somebody right. that had a voodoo doll under their bed, <laughs> right? Or, or actually, you know, was was put through the ordeal or something, uh, and and determined to be a witch. It's just that. 
he made it a little bit better. And this is what I'm saying Christian universities do. They make us feel good about ourselves and our, our religion because we see people with PhDs. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? We have, we have these people with PhDs that are doing the best they can to synthesize mainstream thought with evangelical thought. And it makes us feel good about it. And it moves the evangelical thought in a good direction. Mm -hmm. But by moving it in the right direction, you fail to see, is there not something fundamentally problematic about the whole construct? And you can't see it, right? Because of the sophistication of the the folks involved. Anyway, this anti-intellectualism is really kind of interesting in, in this way. Most Christian universities in the CCCU love love C.S. Lewis. My guess is that most have a class on occasion, or at least used to have classes where they would study the, not just the novels or the literature of C.S. Lewis, but the, uh, and the essays, uh, but the kind of theological contributions. He's not a right. theologian by profession. He was a, you know, well, historian of English. I think of screw tape letters and yeah, so people are going to have these right in the classes. They'll, they'll study screw tape letters. But C.S. Lewis probably couldn't teach at most of these CCC yeah. schools. And this is, I think, if you just get your head around this, if you're a Christian person, you know, um, if you could just get your head around the idea that Wheaton College has the C.S. Lewis letters in the library. But if I affirmed what C.S. Lewis affirmed... You couldn't teach. They them. wouldn't let me teach there. Right. And I, and, you know, when we took... I took that psychology religion class and it talks about basically with, I would say this kind of applies with some of these um, Christian colleges that I think that they're, they're afraid of losing their, their faith or what they believe in their doctrines, right. Mm -hmm. For the sake of being inclusive and allowing more ideas and things like that. So in a certain sense, they either become, irrelevant in a way because they're not willing to introduce anything that threatens, I guess, or I don't even say, yeah, anything that would threaten if you, like, there were so many, think of all of the times that we were told, like, just told, oh, don't, don't look into this philosopher or don't look into this person just because it's like, oh, that one, you know, it's not, that one's not good for you. Their ideas are, you know, they just dismiss it all. So if, if a college allows too many of these other perspectives, I think they, they feel threatened that they, that they're re- what is significant about them religiously will also then disappear. And so right. they actually kind of become irrelevant in a certain sense, if yes. they're stuck in this time capsule where things can't change. Right. Right. But they're or right. If they change too much, if they change too much, then they become something else entirely and lose what they think is their identity. Because if you look at it just in terms, that is exactly right. If you look at it in terms of just churches, the Episcopal church in America is groovy. It is open-minded. It is, it is accepting of all people. It's also dying out because if you don't have the threat of hell, you don't have people to don't necessarily either. go to church all the time anymore. Yeah. yeah. So that said, I remember very commonly the faculty would want to bring in some things to your point, mm-hmm. but they would bring in just enough. And usually we would try to bring in the best people 
but we would kind of bring them as a species of, of like some kind of predator that we had on a chain. Yeah. Well, right. We didn't let them actually into the room. They would be in a cage. This is a killer beast in the cage, and but I, we wouldn't bring a whole library. Right. Yeah. There were people I think that we would study. We would study the new atheists. We'd study angry atheists. We wouldn't study interesting mystic theistic evolutionists. You see, somebody too close, you had to throw out. Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be like Nietzsche, we would study Nietzsche. But we would get very angry about somebody who was proposing a, a different way, like um, we would, in these schools, we do not like, who, who's the guy that my dad likes? Uh, he's a Franciscan. Richard, Richard Rohr. Rohr yeah. yeah. Richard Rohr is more of a threat than the new atheist writers because mm. the new atheist like it's all set up for this kind of debate right right also when you mention um because again this the whole theme right here we're talking about anti-intellectualism right mm-hmm. um i i'd be hard pressed to think that you have any true tenure type uh thing offered to faculty members at any of these colleges oh right they have like no you don't have rolling tenure. contracts or these kinds of things where so it's it protects them a little bit but not you don't get tenure. You don't, right. you can't, you can't really be honest with how you, you know, as soon as you start varying from what the university yeah. says, you're out. That's Some places you could convert to Catholicism and get fired. Right. You know, um, you know, it, the, the very first thing when I announced that I was leaving Concordia, it was partly because I had come to become a, uh, Jesus anarchist. That was the first kind of main step. I'm like, wait a minute. The, the statement of faith at my school technically says that we have to affirm the state and traditional marriage and it's in the confessions. Right. Well, I'm like, well, it's kind of like a radical. If I'm, if I'm with anybody, I'm with the Gnostic Christians and the, and the Anabaptist Christians in the sense of, of not really buying into the institutional structure. So I don't affirm that stuff, you know, that's a very small issue, but it's a big issue. And I'm technically not supposed to teach here anymore in this way. Right. And so I'm like, well, that's that. Well, <laughs> you know, it goes, it, it eventually, you, once that happened, then I allowed it to just kind of unravel. You could have, you could have come into the university and taught being, you know, not necessarily an LCMS Lutheran. Yes. Right? I could have, I could have gone in as a Baptist, but you can't. Then switch over to Lutheranism and then it, undo yeah, it. As far as we understood. So anyway, there's this anti-intellectualism that's built into the system. It's not that people are trying to not be smart. It's not that they're not studying. It's that there's an anti-intellectualism. If what we're doing is we're trying to follow the evidence where it leads, mm-hmm. but the very stated position of the institution is to say, but we're not going to go into certain places. That's, f- that's inherently problematic. The second thing is the donors. And you know a little bit more about this because you also have worked within universities in the development world. Right. And a lot of great people, a lot of people who gave small amounts over a long period of time, sacrificially, they believe Mm -hmm. in the cause. But there are always these concerns. And I don't think in our institutions there were as many necessarily like outstanding problematic concerns other than just the phenomenon of wealthy people reinforcing their grip on wealth by getting 900 colleges to go out there and basically say, not all of them do this, but basically say capitalism and Jesus are our buddies. Mm-hmm. And that the way I got my money is the way of Christianity 
And if anybody says otherwise, right, the commies say that there's no God. So like, we're going to, we're going to preserve this way of being, but we're also preserving the way that we got our money. So you cannot have a, a change of mind intellectually within Christian universities, but you also have the universities always being subservient to the wealthy class and not to the oppressed. Right. Because the oppressed aren't donating anything. Right. Right. What you don't want is to have very few, like lots of money coming from very few, uh, individuals, right? That mm. is like helping to fund the college. What you really want is a larger base. Like you mentioned, those people that give small amounts over all these years, like if they, if you have a lot of those committed type people, mm. um, then like that helps with sort of like having that huge, that, that base that, that more people that are invested in the university, right. Mm. And want to be a part of the university's life. It also says something that if you graduate and you want to get back to where you attended, right? That mm. that's also a message that you valued that, you know, education or that experience and that you are committed to its future. Uh, when, when you get, <laughs> what was so hard though, is then you, you've got lots of people with huge student loan debt mm -hmm. and you're asking them now to become donors when they're having a hard time paying their student loans each month. Mm -hmm. And you want them to also give to the university. Um, that is a, to me, that's just kind of a strange model. Um, and it's really, I mean, I get the idea behind wanting lots of people to support you, but it's really, really like weird when you do have some that come from donations and then the rest of it all coming from people that are like have huge student loan debt. The Christian universities are a tax haven or a tax kind of shelter for people. So I've got a lot of money. I've got a, they're going to take it away from me. There's like a tax I either, burden. I've either got to donate it's gonna it. It's going to go somewhere. Or it's going to go somewhere else, right? And so by giving it to it. something that you care about, you could say, you could pat yourself on your back and, and, and say, I'm doing this right. Well, I understand because there's an interesting argument for it. Um, there's this concept of, of what's called effective altruism, effective altruism. And uh, this came up more into the news recently because that was something affirmed by Sam Bankman-Fried, um, who was arrested recently in the Bahamas because of uh, his cryptocurrency scandal with FTX. Well, that guy was trying to use his super wealth to do good, mm. okay? Uh, or at least look like he was doing good, right? right? As the Tao Te Ching would say, when you lose real virtue, you start to do these public shows charity. of charity. Mm -hmm. And in any case, um, this is a widespread problem in America. People are finding ways to evade paying into the public good to pay teachers. I'm not a statist. I don't work at a public school. I probably wouldn't work at a public school unless I was just like out of all options because I don't like these state factories of thought. Right. Um, and I'm a libertarian socialist. I'm an anarchist. So I'm not a f like, I'm not a fan of these things anyway, but if what our current system is, is the way that we're going to share is through this tax burden. Okay. I prefer to, to do it through mutual aid, not through the state, not through charity. But again, if it's through this collective collecting of, 
of taxes and then redistributing for fire and police and for the roads and for public schools and all this. And the super wealthy pull their money out of that right. and put it into ideological factories. Right. This is a problem. This is a problem for all of us as human beings to think about. Is this what we want happening? Right. And I don't know how we stop it. I don't care. I don't have a political answer right now for how you stop it. I'm asking for people to voluntarily say, I work in the development office. I work as a professor of English. I work as whatever, a, a vice president for enrollment. Mm -hmm. Maybe we just stop doing this. And we can't say we're stopping because most of us, you know, you're trying to put food on the table. You're trying to pay the mortgage, right? right. It's very hard for people. Their self-interest is pushing them towards self-delusion regarding the dangers of Christian universities. And well, and you mentioned like withdrawing from, you know, the sort of the, the public pool, if you will, um, then you have what these little communities that are within, you know, like here in a city or something yep. that they're like little private little sections. Right. And you can yes. almost like a subculture, if yes. you will, that you can create. It's this echo chamber that's orchestrated and preserved by people that want you in an echo chamber. Because what you're not really having is a conversation about whether or not you should have a revolution and, <laughs> and rise up against the overlords, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? The, 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 the wealthy. Right. Well, right? and then you think about this. The super wealthy. Yeah. Then some people, like, you know, look for alternatives because... <laughs> because public schools are so severely underfunded often... Then they want to look for alternative education, right? So mm -hmm. that their children can get the learning that they want in a, a safe environment and all these different things. But it, it none of it goes into um, kind of helping to f fix any problems. It just it's like it's like almost like oh well, I don't like this, so this this is all a mess. I'm just going to go create this new thing right. <laughs> that I can control, right? Or have some control over. Right. That's it's their problematic. Little, it's a little kingdom. It's a little kingdom. And, and it's it can create little cults in its, own, in its mm -hmm. own kind of way. If left unchecked. Yeah. It's not based on what, it's not even based on what the Bible says or what people are looking for as much. It's what people want the Bible to say mm -hmm. from the, those powerful perspectives. Uh, powerful, not perspectives, so much as powerful purchase, right? They've got the money to do it. Um, so you've got this problem. You've got, I think, something we all need to think about as Americans uh, and as worldwide citizens. Do we really want this system to allow us to have the super, super rich having their own pet projects funded? You know, yeah. like... Then on top mm -hmm. of that, sometimes government funding then comes into this... Right. Well, that's Full a side issue because like in, in, in many ways, people will say the state, you know, the state has a, a, a certain kind of factory for ideology, mm -hmm. which I'm not going to deny. And then the Christian universities are just providing this counterbalance to that. I get that argument and there is kind of something to it. Again, as a libertarian socialist, I don't really want the state involved either. Mm -hmm. I want people of goodwill to bind together in mutual benefit where we say, just like the American Psychological Association or the, uh, you know, some kind of librarianship association, it's the professionals, people that care about it, they get together and they create their own standards and people can opt in or opt out through free association, 
right? Like a, I think accreditation in the universities is a good example where, you know, the universities say uh, we're going to we're going to join up with this regional accrediting agency and we're going to use this as kind of peer review and quality control. But this is not the state telling us how to be. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's an, an important thing. Now, the downside is these agencies cannot, because of that, they cannot determine whether a university is actually indoctrinating or not. That's if, if yeah. they say they're indoctrinating, as long as the university says it's indoctrinating, then then fine. Like then they can indoctrinate, you know what I'm saying? Um, so, but anyway, so it's these, these wealthy donors that, um, that become the gatekeepers, if you will, the gatekeepers of American thought. Yeah. Mm, I'm not feeling good about that. Now let's go back to the second university where I was. Well, yeah, the second university, I was the Dean of theology and I taught theology and philosophy at Colorado Christian university. Mm hmm. And when I first got there, it was actually a very positive experience, although the faculty there were to the left of me at the time, and I was surprised. I was surprised at um, the, the faculty that I knew were pretty progressive. Right. They were a lot of them from a Wesleyan perspective or a mainline um, Presbyterian perspective. Um, and so they kind of challenged me. I was surprised. But ultimately, uh, I found it was very comfortable with my friends and faculty within the theology and philosophy world because we were moving in directions that were really interesting. It was the time of the younger evangelicals, the emergent church. I I thought that maybe this was going to be an opportunity for us to create a different way of thinking about Christian universities. Interesting, yeah. And that was like in 2003, 2007. But all of that came to a grinding halt (laughs) when a college dropout named, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Bill Armstrong decided he wanted to come in and gut the liberal arts. Um, he said, you know, we don't need people learning foreign languages. Everybody needs to speak American English. Um, we are going to teach people how to use the four spiritual laws to convert people. Uh, you know, there are all these different things, but basically Bill Armstrong wrote down on a, um, well, he was a former Republican. Basically, senator. On a former Republican senator wrote down on a, a list uh, a list of things on a, na- a napkin. He has recently, you know, he died in, in, since since he was there, um, but he uh, he still has his legacy because if you go to the website of Colorado Christian University, they still list things like sanctity of life, the strategic uh, objectives, traditional family values. Um, basically, you don't have to be Republican, but you have to affirm all of these conservative political values, limited government, this this sort of thing. And so I tried to work within that as a as a kind of libertarian of some sort. I said, yeah, that's great. Uh, I believe in limited government, too, because I was kind of trying to come at it from more of the Baptist heritage of the school. Mm-hmm. But that kind of reformist in me, you know, that it just wasn't working because ultimately he liked having me around. Cause again, it gave the appearance of kind of having some nuanced dialogue, but at some point, um, I just said, well, I can't, I can't do this. And once and, you realized it, it was basically a Republican training camp. Yeah. Right? That's what he was trying to make it into. Cause I mean, we, and we, I don't know, we were, at the homes of some very... Very wealthy people. Uh, that, you know... Having yeah. lunch with Dinesh D'Souza, these kind of, if you know who these cats are, not uh, very savory folks, but they are 
part of this attempt to use the Christian universities to take over America right. and to eventually do what we're trying, what we're seeing now, where um, not only influencing voters, but influencing people to um, go into positions of leadership to government. Uh, and legal professions so that they will then influence things to do things like repeal Roe versus Wade to, for instance, to be able to allow, uh, you know, people not to make cakes for uh, LGBT weddings or something like this is the, the agenda. And what's interesting is, is so there are some folks that would be thinking, okay, well, I resonate with some of these policies or these ideas, right? And they they think that, oh, yeah, like, I want to support that or I want to send my kids there. The problem is, I mean, there's, <laughs> even if you do believe, even if you believe those things, um, it's it doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. And eventually it will hit something that is close to home mm-hmm. for you at some point or mm-hmm. other because they're, it's the control with their own agenda over other people. And so that agenda will just keep changing as it suits them. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so just it's a very dangerous thinking. When I was at Colorado Christian University and I saw the super wealthy plotting the essentially the Molech hostile takeover of a Christian university that had been relatively interesting and and progressive and doing its thing Mm -hmm. and make it into a training ground for a kind of soft Liberty university kind of flow. Um, I realized that there wasn't just a difference of opinion, but there was something that I saw, I saw as evil taking over the universities and taking over the country through the universities and I saw that at the time, but I saw it as an incursion into the CCCU, not a problem with the Christian universities in general. Gotcha. I saw it as the Liberty U's and the and the and some of these schools, and I saw that Colorado Colorado Christian University was trying to become like that, and I didn't want that to happen. But I didn't think it was a problem broadly. And if you go back to what I said about Cotton Mather, even the Whitworths, even the George Foxes here in Portland that are not as uptight, they still are going to be exclusive uh, and they're going to not be intellectually safe places. We're going to pause here. That's the end of part one. We've been kind of talking about the intellectual side of things. And then we, you know, got a little bit into the the problem of the funding and the donors. The money. Um, but, um, I want to pause here and then we'll come back and then we'll address the other couple of points, uh, that, uh, that we had previewed. And that is danger to LGBT students, um, basically rape culture, a problem with not understanding consent, and then the problem of priming students for future abuse and manipulation. That's what we'll be talking about in part two. Come back and join us again. Thanks for being here. Peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. 
Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.